Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, Father, we thank you uh, for community. Lord, we thank you that we can come together uh, as your people, that uh, we can share our hearts, we can... uh, uh, hear from one another, but also that uh, we can come together in a manner like this to worship you, to lift up your name. God, we thank you for your presence that is uh, so felt and so experienced uh, in this place. God, we thank you uh, that uh, your word is true, that when two or three are gathered in your name, that you are here uh, with us, that you are among us. You're, you are here, present uh, through your Holy Spirit. And so we honor your presence. We honor uh, just the, the, the astounding fact that you are here with us when we gather. God, we honour your name, we honour your presence, and God, we ask that you will lead and guide the time that we are about to partake in together. Holy Spirit, we yield to you. We ask that you come and have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But in the 1970s uh, in San Francisco, an unknown man walks from his home to the Golden Gate Bridge. Now his mission was simple, uh, to jump. Passing person after person, tourist after tourist, business owner after business owner, the man climbs the bridge's four-foot safety railing, and then he jumps, falling 220 feet inevitably unto his death. And during the course of the ensuing investigation, the man's psychiatrist, along with the medical examiner, discovered a note on him, and it read, I am going to walk to the bridge. If one person smiles at me on the way, I will not jump. Now, the image is so stark, right? A man walking to his death. The people around him unaware of the life-saving mercy they can show with the simplest of gestures. A smile could have saved this man's life. What might a single word of kindness have done to that man? We will never know. We have become a world of people all alone together. The artist Lauf, I don't know whether I'm pronouncing this right, but Lauf, recently released uh, his new uh, single titled Modern Loneliness, and that has made it to the charts. I think it's like top 10 in Singapore now. And the chorus in the song goes like this, Modern Loneliness, we're never alone, but always depressed. Yeah. Love my friends to death, but I never call and I never text. Yeah. (laughs) I believe the yes are to mask the pain, of, of, of the words that you just read. It's, it's so sad, right? It's so sad. It's so depressing, right? And this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's topping the charts because many find a deep resonance and a solidarity with the words of these songs. Now, isn't this so telling of our cultural climate? Uh, Sherry Turkle, a sociologist and psychologist out of MIT, who's the leading expert of how the digital age is uh, in many ways uh, ruining uh, human connections, in her book uh, titled Alone Together, man, what a title, Alone Together, she says this about our digital age. We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We would rather text than talk. When technology engineers in a mercy, relationships can be reduced to mere connections, and then easy connection becomes redefined as in the mercy. Put otherwise, cyber in the mercy slide into cyber solitudes. So here we see that, that community isn't synonymous with connectivity. You can be connected on many levels. You can have a ton of friends, ton of LinkedIn connections, but that does not equate to deep, meaningful community and connection. And so, you know, you, you can cue my big rant on why online church is an oxymoron. I 
fully believe that, and we might differ on many levels, but I believe that, that church and community has to involve proximity and not just connectivity. Now, another song that I've heard this week is a new single from Hillsong Young and Free, and say what you want and feel what you want about Hillsong Young and Free, but they do a really, really good job of capturing uh, our generations, uh, not our generations, the younger generations <laughs> cry and uh, desire. Uh, I just distance myself, but, but I, I think they, they, they capture it really well, and of course, you know, I, I find it hard to connect sometimes, but I mean, like, hey, you know, you do, you young people, uh, and you know, they released a song, uh, I think last week, titled Best Friends, and uh, the lyrics of the song goes, all of my best friends are sick of pretending, we want the truth, so much is missing, so give us the real thing. This is uh, from Hillsong Young and Free. Now, you know, now isn't this so true, right? You know, one, one song lyric they read earlier um, captures our culture's condition and the other, our cultures and our generations cry. We want the real thing. Now, the English word community or fellowship has become anemic and flat. The Greek word uh, in the Bible is actually koinonia, which means deep, raw, authentic relationships with depth and substance and honesty and transparency where conversations push further than sports and how the weather is like and what clothes you buy, but where life on life digs into the bones and marrow of real, true existence. Koinonia is what marks the community of God, this deep, intimate, authentic connection. And today I'm speaking to you on the subject of authenticity. For week three of our life together, of the sermon series Life Together, I'm speaking on the subject, an authentic community. An authentic community. A pastor recently said that we live in a time of rampant deconstruction and deconversion of faith. Now, our favorite stories aren't really the stories of celebrities coming to faith. Our favorite stories are the Christians who have lost their faith, have had their faith deconstructed and eventually deconvert. Joshua Harris, uh, who wrote the book I Kiss Dating Goodbye, last year divorced his wife and came out and said, I'm no longer a follower of Jesus. There is nothing in my life that reflects that. Now, we know these are the kind of stories that uh, we quote-unquote love because this is what gets the most media attention. Marty Sampson from Hillsong, uh, I don't know whether you're familiar with Marty Sampson, but he wrote some of the anthems that we still sing today. Oh, praise the name of our Lord God. That's Marty Sampson. He wrote a ton of songs that have so galvanized the body of Christ and captured uh, their hearts and, and, and fixed their attention on the things of God. And Marty Sampson, uh, last year, you know, he, he, he came out and professed that he was leaving the Christian faith. And he said this in his, uh, you know, his uh, confession. He said this, uh, I believe it was on Twitter. He said, uh, time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fail? How many preachers fail? Fall, many. No one talks about it. He said, how many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send 4 billion people to a place all cause they don't believe? No one talks about it. Next slide. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet, they can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people, but it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. He continued, I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion, he writes. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. Got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow everyone, I have never been about living my life for others. All I know is what's true to me right now, and Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. Now, there's so much to unpack even uh, in that confession. Uh, you know, line by line, it just hits us, and uh, 
so sad seeing that. But uh, you know, I, I'm not going to go too much uh, further into that. But I just want to zone zone in. Uh, you know, after you know, reading this confession on our culture's obsession with authenticity, our culture's obsession with authenticity. We love authentic things. We love authenticity. We love when people come out and share their true feelings about things, when people talk about controversy, when people share their honest opinions about things and about people. We love authenticity. And in many ways, our culture is obsessed with it, right? We love stories like that where emotions are spilled out. Now, if you type the words authenticity and authentic into Google's Nangram viewer, which plots the graphs of the use of words in books over a given period, you will find that it has that the words authenticity and authentic has a strong uptake in the last five years, and it's become very much a part of our culture's mantra and vernacular. In the title, in an article titled How Millennials Taste for Authenticity is Disrupting Powerful Food Brands, the writer notes a wind of change is ripping through the consumer industries. For decades, big men better, consumers trusted brands they knew, and convenience food was a novelty, no longer. And he says this, consumers are looking to pierce the corporate veil in our industry and to look at what's behind the brand. He declared, the guys responsible for this are the millennials. Millennials have a completely new set of values. He said they want committed brands and authentic products, natural, simpler, more local, and if possible, small, as small as you can. But we don't just want real food, we want real people. When millennials are asked to describe leaders they wanted to follow, one word came up almost nonstop, real. They want real leaders, right? For example, they respect leaders who say straight up, we are in trouble, and well, we could use, instead of, we could just use some improvements here. They want leaders who are real and upfront about situations, about how they actually feel. From real food products, accessible bosses, to a political leader's honest, candid thoughts about a complex situation being leaked, our culture loves and craves authenticity. And this is not just in secular culture, but in the church as well. Now, we simply can't do a sermon series on community and not talk about authenticity, right? It's almost like, you know, breaking the cardinal rules. Search any sermon series on community and authenticity comes up. Now, I love author and TED Talk speaker Brene Brown's uh, definition of authenticity. She said this, to be authentic, we must cultivate the courage to be imperfect and vulnerable. We have to believe that we are fundamentally worthy of love and acceptance just as we are. Now, this sounds good to all of us because we all crave for that kind of authenticity. And I believe it was hardwired into all of us, into all of creation at the dawn of creation. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. A uh, real short verse, it goes like this. Uh, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to man. Next slide, verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, if you read Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 25 in the Hebrew, uh, that word uh, naked uh, is the word aramin, which loosely translates to being fully open, disclosed, revealed, or to be laid bare. Now, most would agree that this uh, wasn't just talking about Adam's and Eve's uh, physicality, but rather their relational dynamic between each other and God. They were aramin, they were unashamed, fully open, laid bare. If I can go further, say honest, transparent, completely vulnerable to each other. And this, in this posture, they were unashamed. Now, that is what God intended for humanity, to be aramin, to be unashamed. 
Now, if you read further in the story in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 1, uh, one, I don't have that slide up, the Genesis writer introduces a new character into the creation story, and that is Satan or Hasatan. After having showed us what human nature has God intended for it to be, he goes on to describe the nature of Satan. And the word uh, in our Bibles are uh, used to describe Satan is the word crafty or shrewd. And now that Hebrew word uh, is actually the word aram, right? Notice the poetic use of word, right? words, right? Aramim and Aram. And Aram, if you read into it, is the complete opposite of Aramim. It means to be close, to be hidden, to not be fully honest, to hold something back. So you can see real quickly you know, what the Genesis writer is trying to communicate to us. Humanity was created by God to be open, honest, transparent, to be known, to be intimate relationship with God and one another, while the nature of Satan was to be crafty, shrewd, hidden, dishonest, and closed off, to hide from God and from each other. Now, this is the twisted part of the whole thing, right? You know, we all crave for Aramin, and we know uh, after uh, mankind fell, you know, they, they hid from God, and, you know, Adam had that, that moment where he threw Eve under the bus, the woman made me do it. Now, this is the twisted part of the whole thing, right? The very form of community that we were designed for at the dawn of creation has become the kind of community that we are the most uncomfortable in, right? And that's exactly the enemy's plan, to convince us that if we are truly honest, open, and vulnerable, no one would love us, not people, not even God. So we put up facades, pretenses, act if everything's okay, create our lives like museum art pieces so that people would like and accept us. But deep down, we grow dissatisfied and malnourished on the soul level. Why? Because we know the kind of love, quote-unquote, acceptance we are experiencing are, is built on lies and half-truths, and we live our lives constantly wondering if people would truly love us if they knew the entirety of our lives. Now, I talked about a big bunch about authenticity. I personally believe that as a church, I think we still have a ways to go, but I think that as a church, we have really cultivated a value for authenticity. I think many of you uh, love the idea of authenticity, embrace it wholeheartedly, and long to make strides and uh, long to grow in that area. Our communities, I believe, are growing to be more authentic, are really authentic with our lives, even uh, in times of prayer, we share our needs openly. I think we are, are really you know, are making attempts to grow uh, to be an authentic community. Now, I had my fair share of experience with authenticity. Uh, you know, I was uh, uh, in a ministry school in the U.S. as well, you know, and I had a group of friends. We would uh, gather on Thursday nights. We would play poker, no money, and then we would drink beer, uh, alcoholic, <laughs> uh, and we would, we would hang out together, you know, and, uh, you know, we would, we would play, you know, and we would talk, and we would share very openly about, like, our needs, our struggles, you know, because you have to know that we are in a ministry school, and there's almost, like, a temptation to look and appear hyper-spiritual and like you have it all together. But I had a group of guys where we would just share openly about struggles, our needs, our disagreements with like certain things, with certain people. And it was for the most part a very authentic, a real kind of community. Now, if I could be honest with myself, you know, I, I, I met with these guys every Thursday night and I would share very openly, we would share very openly. Um, but I wouldn't say that I experienced a ton of transformation and life change, uh, even in that authentic environment, even though I had a rhythm of authenticity. You know, every Thursday I would meet and uh, we would just share openly and be, quote-unquote, real, very real with one, one another. Uh, I remember, you know, I spent some time with uh, a guy who, uh, you know, uh, it's a uh, professed Christian, used to come to our church, and, and you know, uh, we would meet and we would hang out, 
And I remember one, one meeting, you know, uh, we were talking and just started swearing, man. Not just like as a sailor, but as like a sailor who has like been in the Navy for like 30 years. It's just swearing non-stop, non-stop. And, uh, and for the most part, you know, I'm usually okay, you know, I'm, I can like, okay, you know, I can just like filter through. But like the, the number of swear words was slowly taking up more uh, airtime than actual other words. And so I was like, this guy is like really swearing. And so he stopped himself after he noticed how uncomfortable I was. And he's like, wow, uh, I hope you don't mind. I'm just being uh, authentic. I'm just being real here. And you know, I, while I appreciate uh, his uh, comfort uh, and his uh, desire for me to experience him in his real self, I've also wondered, right, is this all authenticity is to be? Right, just for people to like be real, share it as it is, you know, like here's my, my struggle, here's my dysfunction, like take it and go, you know. Is that what authenticity is cut out to be? Is this the vision, right? Is that a grander vision? Uh, maybe beyond just the sharing of real needs, the sharing of struggle, is that a grander vision beyond, right? Or have we stopped short of the intended goal? Which brings me to my point, and this is my main point. Everybody say main point? Main point. And this is this. Authenticity isn't the goal of community. Let that sit in for a moment. I'll explain further. Rather, it is the environment which makes possible the practices that enables us to become an authentic Christ-centered community. Authenticity in and of itself isn't the goal, but it makes possible certain practices that enable us to be an authentic Community. Now, I chose the title An Authentic Community with Care, Purpose, and Intent, right? Because authenticity, you know, when we think about it is openness, nothing hidden, without shame, rightly so. But, you know, I would also like to make a case that an authentic community is also something we are to pursue in the vein of uh, legit as opposed to not legit, real as opposed to counterfeit, uh, transformative as opposed to tolerant, a compelling biblical alternative, alternative society as opposed to a social club built around preference. So what does it mean to be an authentic community in our world? Right? What does it mean to be a real Christian community in our world? Uh, M. Scott Peck in his book on community writes about this fake pseudo-community that many of us have set up for. He says this in his book, in pseudo-community, a group attempts to purchase community cheaply by pretense. Ouch. It is not an evil conscious pretense of deliberate black lies, Rather, it is an unconscious, gentle process whereby people who want to be loving attempt to be so by telling little white lies, by withholding some of the truth about themselves and their feelings in order to avoid conflict. But it is still a pretense. It is an inviting but illegitimate shortcut to nowhere. He goes on to say, the essential dynamic of pseudo-community is conflict avoidance. The absence of conflict in a group is not by itself diagnostic. Genuine communities may experience lovely and sometimes lengthy periods free from conflict, but that is because they have learned how to deal with conflict rather than avoid it. Pseudo-community is conflict-avoiding. True community is conflict-resolving. Now, some practices you know, that we are to adopt as a mainstay in our communities in our pursuit to become a community that is authentic, as opposed to fake and pseudo, are these. I have six practices. Confession, or such you see. Confession, correction, confrontation, counsel, comfort, and championing. Now, some of your hearts sank because you go, what, six more points? I'll just do two, okay? I'll just do two. 
Relax, relax. I just saw your faces. Relax. There's, there's, there's six, but we'll get to the rest of the four. But I think these are extremely important, and I hope this would uh, you know, really become a regular rhythm in our, in our communities, right? That we'll move uh, beyond socializing, beyond just sharing of needs, as important as it may be, but actually adopt some of these practices to confess, to correct, confront, counsel, comfort, and to champion one another. Now, I'd like to speak on confession. Uh, first practice, confessing our sins to one another. Now, in the 1980s, Northern American uh, evangelism experienced an almost revolutionary in- innovation, which later came to be known as the Mega Church. And what defined this new dialect of Christianity wasn't really the size, but the strategy. The philosophy of ministry and evangelism behind the mega church movement was often described as seeker-sensitive. Now, in order for the church to be that sort of place, it was going to have to feel less well, um, feel less churchy, right? It was going to have to be sensitive to seekers. The church would have to remove some aspects of its practice and tradition that were alleged to be obstacles to the unchurch. And one of those traditions uh, that were lost, I would argue, is the practice of corporate confession. For many people, the term confession conjures up images of a dark wooden booth and whispering one's sins to another person through a screen. However, confession is really just an expression of remorse about the past and hope for the future. Now, King David is a well-known man in the Bible, and we know that he had a time of failing. And in Psalm 32, he speaks of this unconfessing. He says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Really graphic language, right? My bones wasted away. Interesting, because doctors say that achy bones are a common symptom of depression. It says this, my strength was set. We weren't made to live with sin. I think of the story of uh, a man who had a blade found in his skull. I have this picture up. Now, it, the story goes, a Chinese man's stabbing headache ended this week when doctors found a rusty four-inch knife that had been lodged in his skull for four years. Li Fuyan said a robber had stepped in on the right side of his jaw, and for years he had suffered severe headaches and trouble breathing, but didn't know that it was uh, because a knife blade was stuck inside his head. My point is this, we weren't made to live with foreign objects in our body, right? Likewise, our soul, for our soul, sin, shame, guilt are foreign objects, foreign bodies to the soul, and until we rid ourselves of them, we live in perpetual searing pain that inevitably brings about this connection to our sense of mission to people and to God. Now, this practice of confession is lost for many reasons, right? Uh, Bana recently did some research on how people uh, desire to live out and practice their faith, and they found that 43% of the people polled would prefer to have an isolated individual faith. 43% of people polled would prefer to have an isolated faith, meaning just me and Jesus, no one else. And that is symptomatic of our culture's bend towards uh, individualism. And as I mentioned last week, you know, our faith, though personal, is to have a public outworking. We need community. And the second reason that this practice of confession isn't done so often today is because our culture no longer di- discusses sin, and the church has followed suit. We no longer call sin, sin, right? We call it a little white lie. We trivialize and domesticate it. And then we attach it to things like dessert, that chocolate cake is so sinful, right? The point is, we minimize sin. We do. Things we used to call in a previous generation sin, we now call by a different name. A mistake, an error, my bad, a tendency, a disorder, a disease, 
an inherited trait, an addiction, a personal opinion, self-expression, an act of liberation, or the lesser of two evils. Things that used to be called sin in previous generation, we have named, renamed it through culture and minimalized the gravity, which is sin. We have a lot of ways of recategorizing, repacking, and remarketing sin in our generation. We no longer discuss sin, and when we no longer discuss sin, we lose a paradigm for good and evil, to distinguish between good and evil. John Piper calls sin the suicidal abandonment of joy. Augustine, in talking about sin, says this, for wherever the human soul turns itself other than to you, it is fixed in sorrows, even if it's fixed upon beautiful things. And we have to admit that we are all susceptible. We inevitably fall into it. That's why we need confession to one another. Uh, a couple of verses of confession. I know I'm running a bit of time, but do you have a bit, five more minutes in you? Thank you. Uh, the Bible says this about confession. I have a couple of scriptures. It says this, uh, if we confess our sins, be faith, he is faithful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is in 1 John. But in James chapter 5, notice the language. He says this, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, the big question here is that isn't confessing to God enough? Why must I confess to others? Well, the short answer is the Bible tells you to do so. And the other answer is, no, I, I, the, the language is interesting, right? You know, in that first passage, right, it, uh, first scripture in First John, it says that God will forgive us and purify us. But in James chapter 5, when we confess our sins to one another, it says this, that you will be healed. And so it seems to suggest to us that there is this restorative potential and restorative power that we can experience when we bring our sins to one another, when we confess to one another. And another more real-life observation is that in my own time in ministry and counseling people, and, and you know, it, it might not be a long time, but in all of my experience, I have not heard of one person who had a lasting breakthrough over sin by dealing it with himself or herself. Every lasting breakthrough and story of breakthrough I've heard involve people, involve other people coming alongside to uh, create a culture of accountability, of confession, of journeying with one another. We need people to overcome sin. John Piper calls, uh, says this about confession. Honesty and purity of heart involve continual admission and confession of sin to appropriate people in our lives. If we want to be honest and pure of heart, we need to practice confession. Now, the next practice I'd like to cover real quickly is this receiving and offering correction. Receiving and offering correction. I read recently of a pastor's reflection when encountering a professed Satanist at a gathering. He said he developed a relationship with him, spent some time with him, and he started talking to him about the cross, about how he's defeated Satan, interrogated him on his position. Now, the Satanist said this now in his interaction with him, that Satanism is not the worship of the devil, as most people believe. Satanism is the worship of self. He was referencing a quote uh, by Anton LaVey, founder of Church Satan. He says this, We don't worship Satan, we worship ourselves using the metaphorical representation of the qualities of Satan. Satan is the name used by Judeo-Christians for that force of individuality and pride within us. He continued with saying, We look to Satan as the first authentic rebel who wanted to define his own place in the world. That's why I'm a Satanist, because I want to be like that. And so the essence of Satanism is not drinking blood, wearing horns, or sacrificing animals. It is the fundamental commitment to taking a seat on the throne of your life. It's the belief that you deserve to be at the center of the known universe. That is pride. Now, pride for us might not manifest itself in outright rebellion against God, but it may do 
it may manifest itself in our refusal to recognize that we need other people. In the Genesis account, after declaring that all was good, God said that it was not good for man to be alone. It, is, it seems by divine design that we were created with an intrinsic need for other people. And so the antidote to pride is humility. Jesus came to liberate us from the all-consuming burden of pride so that we are free to love. That is humility. Now, practicing correction, or rather to say giving correction, seems to fly against the grain of our culture. In a time where the virtue of tolerance and respecting another's individuality is seen as sacred. Now, I recently saw a uh, trailer of a Netflix documentary, and this is a new documentary. I think the title is The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. Now, this documentary that is based on, uh, that it's, tells the story of the brutal torture and murder of an eight-year-old boy. Uh, and this case was historic on many levels because not only were his abusers prosecuted, charges were brought up against the four social workers who did not take appropriate action, even though signs of abuse were present. And a line from the trailer struck me and hit me really hard. A lady in the trailer says this, that, the, that the, the ultimate evil is seeing what's wrong and looking away when you have a power to make the difference. The ultimate evil is seeing what's wrong and looking away when you have a power to make the difference. We have to know when we refrain from giving correction, when correction is due, we aren't celebrating individuality. We are consenting to another person's demise and, and, and our accessories to his or her folly. Our culture has redefined love as acceptance and tolerance. But anyone who is in a loving relationship would know that love encompasses not just acceptance, but also correction, confrontation, challenging, and counseling. Love ought to make its concerns and opinions known. That is what it means to love. David Brooks says this, and I love this quote. Uh, he's a columnist for the New York Times, and he writes this, the desire to be embraced and praised by the community is intense. People dread being exiled and condemned. Moral life now is not built on the continuum of right and wrong. It is built on the continuum of inclusion and exclusion. So we do what is right. We do what is palatable. We do what is well accepted. What an indictment on our culture of tolerance. We'll end off with this final line from Paul. Paul says this, Romans 12, chapter 9. I'm sure you all of you are familiar with this verse. It says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now that word hypocrisy in the Greek is so interesting because it's used to specifically refer to Greek actors in that day. And in, then, in that day in theater, the Greek actors would wear different masks and they would play different roles in a production and they would be switching masks all the time, playing different characters in the production. And the story goes that you, know, you would almost never, uh, if, if so, rarely see the actual face of the actor because he or she would constantly be wearing masks all the time. Now, Paul knew he would be writing to an audience who was familiar with Greek theater. And he said this, that this is what love is not to look like. It's not to look like hypocrisy, the wearing of masks. Love is to occur without hiddenness. Love is to be with nothing hidden. There is a movement of vulnerability in our world today. We love leaders who are vulnerable. We love leaders who share and who are real, don't we? But in many ways, we love false vulnerability. We curate minimal levels of brokenness to connect, but not near enough that we can actually be hurt. But it's interesting for us to know that the Latin word, Latin root word for vulnerability, the word valere, literally means to be wound, to be hurt. Now, there's not a wound me movement going on in our world today. It would be a terrible title for a TED Talk. But here's the challenge. All love has to enable wounding. 
All love has to permit wooding. And isn't that what Jesus displayed on the cross for all of us to see? He came to the earth to save us, to love us, yet we stripped him near him to the cross and quite literally wound him. And this, he says, is the price of my love for you. And perhaps this is what we need to bear. Coming to each other with our failings, but also our honest opinions and concerns, and potentially being rejected, turned away, and wounded. All Christian love in the way of Jesus would actually lead us to a place where we are willing to be wounded for the sake of others. And so this is what authenticity is to look like. Not just the open sharing of our struggles and our pains as good as it may be, but we're shifting the goal line here. We're shifting it beyond that. And we're saying that there needs to be practices put in place for us to move from a place of just confession into transformation. Where we spur each other onto doing good works and growth. So we're shifting goal line here, deeper than we thought to go, because the goal of community isn't just authenticity, it's maturity. Amen? You stand?